listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3 on Tuesday the 23rd of August. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. China has cut its benchmark lending rates, adding to easing measures announced last week. The one-year loan prime rate was cut by five basis points to 3.65%. However, that was lower than the 10 basis points forecast by economists. The five-year LPR, around which mortgages are based, was lowered by a bigger margin of 15 basis points to 4.3%. Economists had been forecasting a 10 basis point cut. The People's Bank of China said yesterday that financial institutions should take the lead in keeping credit growth stable. In a statement released late Monday, the PBOC said financial institutions, especially major state-owned banks, should increase loan issuance to the real economy and also improve the credit support for smaller micro-enterprises, green development and scientific and technological innovation. The PBOC also asked banks to ensure the reasonable financing needs of the real estate sector. The Chinese province of Sichuan, a hub for lithium mining and solar panel production, has extended industrial power cuts to August the 25th and activated its highest emergency response to deal with extreme electricity supply shortages. Sichuan province has suspended electricity, uh, electricity supply to all industrial activities to favour supply to households. And HSBC has launched a 40 billion Hong Kong dollar loan scheme with cash rebates to encourage Hong Kong's small and medium-sized enterprises to hire staff. SMEs that apply for a loan under the scheme will receive 1,000 Hong Kong dollars for each new member of staff they hire, up to a maximum of 10. In addition, small businesses that successfully apply for a loan through the scheme will get a two-month interest rate rebate of up to 10,000 Hong Kong dollars, bringing the total cash handout to a possible 20,000. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong of Leeds Securities and Winnie Wu at Bank of America Securities. With a view from Japan, it's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Money Talk on RTHK. On Wall Street, the summer rally has come to an end. U.S. stocks suffered their biggest decline in two months, led lower by the tech sector, as investors await Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's comments at Jackson Hole on Friday. The S&P 500 dropped 2.1% to 4,138. The Dow tumbled 643 points, or 1.9%, to end the session at 33,064. It was the worst day of trading since June the 16th for both the Dow and the S&P 500. However, the S&P 500 remains about 13% above its June lows. The Nasdaq Composite Index slumped 2.6% to 12,382, leaving it about 16% above its mid-June low. Shares of AMC Entertainment cratered 42% after its rival Cineworld, which owns US movie theatre chain Regal Cinemas, said it's considering filing for bankruptcy. 
European shares dropped after Bundesbank President Joachim Nagel said over the weekend that the ECB must continue hiking interest rates even as recession risks in Germany grow. The pan-European stock 600 index fell 1% and Germany's DAX index tumbled 2.3%. London's FTSE 100 was off 0.2%. Hong Kong stocks rebounded from opening losses of around 1% following the cut in China's benchmark lending rates, but still ended the day lower. The Hang Seng was 116 points, or 0.6% lower, at a two-week low of 19,657. The tech index dropped 1%. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index jumped 1.3% higher following the LPR cuts. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was up 0.6% at 3,278. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 0.2% lower at $96.48 a barrel, despite the Saudi energy minister saying that OPEC Plus may need to cut production if prices keep falling. The benchmark TTF gas price in Europe surged more than 10% to a new record high following Gazprom's announcement Friday that the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is to be halted from August the 31st for three days for maintenance. The price of European gas is now more than 14 times its average over the past decade. Gold dropped 0.7% to $1,735 an ounce as the US dollar soared and the US 10-year Treasury bond yield broke above 3% for the first time in a month, climbing five basis points to 3.02%. And the US dollar index is up 0.8% to its highest in almost six weeks as risk-off sentiment hits other asset classes. The euro has hit its lowest level in two decades. The European single currency is below parity with the dollar at 99.5 cents. That's almost 1% lower on the day and hitting its lowest level since December 2002. The Japanese yen is 0.4% weaker at 137.5 against the buck. Sterling fell half a percent to $1.17 and two-thirds of a cent and nine Hong Kong dollars and 23 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan is at 6.86 and three quarters versus the dollar and Bitcoin has dropped below t- Drop below $21,000 at one stage, but has edged back up this morning to $21,300. And if we take a look around Asia-Pacific stock markets as they open up for the day, in Australia, the SX200 down two-thirds of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan off 0.9%. Uh, the Cosby is down 0.7% shortly after the open. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 30 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Time to take 10. Let's welcome our guests over in the Queensway studio. We have James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. And for the first time on Money Talk, we welcome Winnie Wu, who is China Equity Strategist at Bank of America Securities. Morning to you, Winnie. Morning. 
Um, let's start with these uh, lending rate cuts that occurred in China uh, yesterday, adding to the easing measures uh, that Beijing announced last week as Beijing ups efforts to spur credit demand in an economy that's hobbled by a property crisis and a resurgence of COVID infections. The one-year LPR was cut by five basis points to 3.65%. The five-year LPR, around which mortgages are based, was lowered by a big margin of 15 basis points to 4.3%. James, most mortgages in China are tied to the five-year LPR, so how significant is this? Yeah, I think it come out as the same day that uh, Bloomberg reported there will be a twenty a $200 billion uh, special loan for the real estate developers. Uh, to should say we haven't had any confirmation of that, have we? It's just a, no, we a don't. report at this stage. No, we don't. Uh, it's about the fourth time we heard such news. Uh, the the time, the, the amount of the, uh, the bailout or the special loan is different every time. But the same day it was out with the uh, five-year LPR down for the third time in the year. So I think the uh, the emphasis on the policymakers are pretty clear. They want the market to believe that they have the resolve to take care of the uh, real estate market. So this is all about the, these cuts. Are all about really trying to stabilize the property market. Yes, it is. Uh, it's becoming a a problem that I think the market is ten, tending to believe that there will be a pretty ugly ending and there will be a very hard. Uh, landing for this kind of problems, and uh, I think the the total amount of stored uh, real estate projects that uh, people are still paying mortgage for is about uh, two trillion uh, RMB. So a twenty two hundred a two hundred billion uh, bailout or special loan, together with the fifteen uh, fifteen point cut in five year LPR, I'm, I'm not really sure if the market 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 buys this idea. Winnie, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think this will work? Will these uh, rate cuts stabilize the property market? Mm, yeah, I think, you know, uh, from our conversation with investors, property is certainly the number one concern for investors for China market now. I think there are concerns for, you know, the current confidence crisis leading to a downward spiral in the property-related activities, and that leads to hard lending of the economy. And there's also the broader medium-long-term concern of uh, Japanese vacation type of prolonged asset price depreciation and financial crisis. Mm. Uh, from my perspective, you know, I think China, from property to financial crisis, the transmission is via the real economy, right? It's not through the financial derivatives. Um, So the transmission mechanism is more gradual, which means the government does have a lot of opportunity to observe and intervene and to try to do just enough, right? Previously, whenever there is a problem in the economy, they try to overstimulate, they try to do a blanket easing, which quite often resulted in overstimulating an ever-growing asset price bubble. This time, it seems they try to avoid repeating the old mistakes. So they are doing this piecemeal easing. They are doing the baby steps. Um, is that going to be enough? We need to see. I think, you know, the frequent, high frequency data points market will be watching one mm-hmm. is the home sales numbers, especially the primary home sales. And two is the monthly credit number because, you know, rate cut in a way is trying to support credit demand, right? And also PBOC summon the banks and require them to step up the credit support. So if. What, what, know, what people want though on the mainland, isn't it? What, what's. 
individuals, what mortgage um, owners want is they want to have confidence that the house that they bought is going to be delivered. And so therefore, they're really looking for the authorities to provide some sort of backstop to basically guarantee that they will eventually take delivery of this house. Do these latest measures do that? Uh, rate cut in itself doesn't, but I think the National Bailout Fund will help. It's basically saying that, okay, central government will provide such a lender of last resort in case local government fail to mobilize resources in time. There will be this bailout fund to help the completion of those projects. I think the fund, you know, that's been discussed for so long is in the forming. It's just the details because from central government perspective, they also want to prevent the moral hazard on the local government front. Mm. James, what this 200 billion yuan bailout fund that's being talked about, being reported about what 29.3 billion US dollars. First of all, is it big enough um, for all the stored housing projects that are um, around on the mainland at the moment? And, and does it do that? Does it provide confidence now uh, for people to go back into the housing market? Yeah, Peter, I think these two are essentially the same question. Uh, is it big enough to boost confidence? I think it's not. Uh, the the total amount of, like I said, the total amount of, of start projects that people are still paying mortgage for is about 2 trillion yuan. And uh, so some commercial banks are, itself has about 1 trillion yuan of such loans. Mm-hmm. So uh, 200, uh, 200 billion dollar, uh, 200 billion yuan, a bailout fund, or it's it's not really a bailout. It's it's a special loan to the to the real estate developers. Mm. Um, I doubt I doubt it's going to be enough. But uh, it's 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 a gesture. I think it's, mm. it's it's a stance that it's willing to take for the first time, if it's true this time. Uh, because, like I said, we've heard about uh, such such bailout funds for for the fourth fourth time now. The first time about one trillion yuan. Second time three trillion yuan, and uh, the fourth time, uh, <laughs> f- third time, and fourth time mm. are all about. Two to three billion, uh, so I, uh, 200 to to 300 billion. So I think yeah, the authorities are in a hole, really, aren't they? Because once you lose confidence in what it in effect is China's biggest asset, asset class, in fact, it's the world's biggest asset class yes. property, it, it's very hard to, to get back. And anyway, um, households are saving up. They really, for all sorts of reasons right now, don't want to take on more debt. Uh, I think the, the credit market uh, performance is a pretty good sign of how the, the, the everyday people in China feels about this crisis. Uh, the, 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 June, the May figures, the, the June figures all are promising or makes us feel a little bit op- optimistic. But the July figures are really, really disappointing. Uh, mm. the, the, the bank lo- new bank loans is about one-fourth one of uh, what it was in June and the corporate loans is about one-tenth what it was in June. So I, I think the, the economy, the people in China are really feeling this. Winnie, the, the People's Bank of China said yesterday that financial institutions should take the lead in keeping credit growth stable and they're urging the major state-owned banks to increase loan issuance to the real economy, support SMEs. Um, they also wanted them to ensure the financing needs of the real estate sector. The problem is um, China's got plenty of cash, hasn't it? The um, the banks, that there's a lot of money in the system um, to lend. It's just that people don't want to borrow at the moment. So isn't this a, a sort of a classic uh, liquidity trap? Mm. I think people unwilling to borrow is a combination of a number of factors, right? I think zero COVID policy, the lack of predictability of like how long your factory, your restaurant can be operating during the course of the year, that's actually a huge 
uh, uh, concern from the borrower perspective. Even if you cut rate to zero, they're not going to borrow if、mm. they don't know. You know, they, they keep paying the utilities, paying the salaries, but they have zero revenue. So I think gradual relaxation of zero COVID will be one very important stimulating factor for the economy and for the credit demand. And we're hoping that we'll see some improvement in the coming months. And secondly, you know, on the property side, again, what we are having now in the in terms of the very weak mortgage demand is quite exceptional. So normally every year, mortgage new loan should be around four trillion or roughly, you know, three、uh, hundred billion per month. But in this year, first half, we only had zero point five trillion of net new mortgage loan, which is down like seventy five percent, down seventy five percent from a normal level. Again, I don't think that's a policy intention, and that's due to COVID lockdowns, project suspension, developer default, and I think we should see some normalization there. So I don't necessarily believe that China already entered. This liquidity trap and this beyond help. I think relaxation of zero COVID improvement on the property-related policy and confidence, and even the policy communication, will help bring back some of the demand. James, on top of the existing problems, we've now got this two-month、um, power shortage caused by the drought、um, and, and the heat wave on the、uh, on the mainland, especially in、uh, Sichuan province. Yeah.、Um, how how big a problem is this? And is this another big drag on the economy, or is it something that's going to come to an end soon? No, I think it's not the first time the the, the provinces are experiencing this kind of、uh, power shortages. And、uh, back then, it will be back in the end of 2018 and 2020. There will be、uh, like a few provinces provinces have to push、uh, rolling blackouts for factories in order to keep the、uh, people in the area、uh, having a certain kind of living standard. And、uh, I think it's not the first time; it's not new. So,、uh, is this worse than normal? Though it it seems to be. You know the temperatures are much higher than normal. It seems to be going on longer than normal in, than previous years. It is. It is. I think, for example,、uh, there will be a two-day blackout for the bond in Shanghai, the famous、mm. bond, and、uh, so some uh, 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 some uh, controversial key opinion leader like Hu Xijing said, "Oh, it's a it's a gesture." Means the government have the resolve to take care of this、uh, power shortages, and、uh, it makes people feel warm at heart. I mean, <laughs>、uh, he's not wrong. I mean, it's、mm. pretty warm. Uh, mm. To be sure,、uh, in Shanghai, it's about 40 degrees Celsius.、Uh, it's、mm-hmm. becoming a new norm, so it's going to be warm all over, not just the heart. So it's pretty serious this year, and I think the, the real problem lies in the design of the grid and uh, the uh, the traditional power uh, power uh, supply suppliers. They have little to no incentive to store energy, especially store. Renewable energy. So,、mm. for example, the the province of Hunan,、uh, it's, it relies on、uh, about sixty percent of its power supply on re- renewables. But the problem is,、uh, in low season, these renewable energies are a lot of them are going to waste、uh, without being stored because the the power factories do not have in- enough incentives or storage units to store those energy. So, I think this re- this really calls for a In-depth reformation of the whole grid system. Winnie, do these power cuts cause further global supply chain problems, particularly in the areas of、uh, lithium batteries and so- solar panels? Uh, yeah, I mean it's certainly adding to the concerns of that. But hopefully, I think today is the the, the time. Supposedly, summer is over、uh, in the traditional lunar calendar. So hopefully, the extreme weather will be behind us soon, and the situation will be contained. 
Okay. Um, James, give me your thoughts on the, on the markets. The, first of all, the Hang Seng, it's down 16%, uh, so far this year. Uh, the MSE China index, it's now at its lowest level versus its global peers, uh, since the year 2000. It's 17, 17% below its five, five year average. The MSCI China index down 12% so far this quarter compared to an 8% gain for the MSCI global index of shares. Um, first of all, we, I think we know the reasons why um, China's underperforming, but do you see any sign of this underperformance coming to an end soon? Uh, I, I doubt it. Sentiment is pretty uh, pretty rough uh, at this point, and uh, the, even for the, the U.S. states, uh, United States market, we think the the equity uh, uh, bull run in a bear market has ended, and uh, the the uh, the uh, earnings season is not certainly any of any comfort because if we take out the energy sector, the S and P 500 EPS is actually down 6.7 percent for the second quarter, and for uh, China, the greater China market, I, I think the, the sentiment is certainly worse than what we expect what we were expecting in in May and June because back then we were uh, pretty confident on two signals that the credit market and the economy is going on a better run because we when, when we when we looked at uh, China credit impulse and the total social financing figures we we feel like there is a comeback but uh, July figures is actually making us feel a little pessimistic about how how it is going so I, I think that the pet the the, uh, the sentiment is down and the uh, money is certainly running out of Hong Kong. Uh, for example, the Hansen index, 19,000, about 19,600 points is where southbound money uh, found Hong Kong stocks cheap and then came mm -hmm. to Hong Kong and to buy the dip. But uh, it doesn't work. It didn't work uh, last Tuesday on the day that Hansen index hit this point. Uh, the, there was an outflow of southbound money by about uh, 2 billion uh, Hong Kong dollars. Okay. Winnie, what are your thoughts? Does this help? Of this this underperformance of Chinese markets against global mm. markets, does it continue? We've got about maybe 30, 40 seconds, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think the extreme bearishism is actually a contrarian buy signal. Look at the zero COVID policy, look at the property policy, look at earning downward revision. It's all coming to an end. We do expect a, a rally in the rest of the year. Okay, great. Thank you very much. That's Winnie Wu, China Equity Strategist at Bank of America Securities, and James Wong, who's Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities. On the phone now is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning. Uh, let me start with the, uh, the inflation numbers that we saw recently in Japan. Consumer prices in Japan now rising at the fastest level in almost eight years in July. The consumer price index rose 2.4% uh, from a year ago. If you take out the impact of sales tax hikes, it's the strongest reading since 2008. Is, is Japan showing signs of catching up now with the rest of the world on the inflation front? It is, and I would say it certainly would be the case if not for Vladimir Putin. I think that mm. in many ways the 2% inflation that Japan is finally, finally getting after basically a decade of trying is really more about Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the way it's affected global commodity prices, and the way that Japan is importing oil, food, and other commodities on a currency that's down between 20 and 30% uh, over the last couple of years. And so you put it all together, 
And on the one hand, you'll say, well, it's great that Japan is finally getting the, the inflation it's wanted for 10 years now. The problem is that it's the bad inflation. It's mm-hmm. inflation being imported from overseas. It's not organic inflation. It isn't like Sony or Toyota saying, well, you know, the market is good and the economy is good. Let's start raising wages. Mm-hmm. If wages were rising commensurate in any way with the inflation we're seeing, I think economists here would take a deep breath and say, well, you know, this is not a terrible scenario. But in many ways, again, the kind of of inflation Japan is getting, it's not the kind of inflation they would have wanted 10 years ago. And there's a question of how how sort of durable this inflation will be if events in Russia, you know, calm down, oil prices come down. So the inflation is now above the Bank of Japan's target of 2% every month since April. Um, does this make it harder for the Bank of Japan to justify keeping interest rates at these ultra-low levels? Well, it does, but the alternative is even worse. If the Bank of Japan signaled today that they were going to taper, I think Japan's financial system would not, wouldn't, certainly wouldn't collapse, but it certainly would uh, quake a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about the fact that the Bank of Japan, its balance sheet is now bigger than the entire $5 trillion economy. It owns more than half of all outstanding government bonds. It is the biggest investor in the stock market through exchange-traded exchange funds. It owns, you know, more than well, almost 50% of the stock market. If Japan began withdrawing capital uh, from these markets, there's no telling what would happen. If Japanese bond yields rose, mm-hmm. there's no telling what would happen. So the more likely scenario is that the BOJ will say, well, we're not going to change policy anytime soon, but do not expect us to be pouring more yen into the system. We're, we're on hold for, you know, for quite a while. Now tell me about uh, Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida. He's not having a good time at the moment, is he? He's tested positive of COVID-19, but also a poll in the Manichi newspaper over the weekend shows support for his government falling from 52% in mid-July to 36%. That's quite a, a dramatic collapse, and particularly when people were thinking that maybe support for his government, uh, you know, the country might come together after the murder of Shinzo Abe. It doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, uh, including me. That was my expectation a couple of months back. Um, you're right. Whenever Japanese prime ministers see their poll numbers fall to this level, it's never a good sign. They typically, you know, in Japan, prime ministers typically last about 12 months at, at most. And Kishida is facing, you know, basically the barrel of voters at the moment. I mean, will his party decide to make a change going forward? Who knows? But, you know, certainly from his reform efforts, if it's a reform standpoint, the 36% approval rating is not a great public mandate to push through with risky and politically, um, you know, courageous things to, to, uh, to change the economy and change mm-hmm. the, the trajectory. He recently uh, rejiggered his cabinet. He recently did a cabinet reshuffling, and it seems to have backfired terribly. Um, he didn't replace the underperforming ministers, um, and he kept a lot of the old guard on and so that backfired. And ironically, you know, having COVID this week might be the least of his problems. Does this all weaken his grip on power now? It does. And even worse, it weakens his ability to get big things done, which will further erode his, his hold on power. Mm. I think in his cabinet reshuffling, his big mistake was not replacing the finance minister who, I mean, frankly, would you even know his name? I don't think anybody outside Japan would know his name. We, I pretty much have to Google him myself. Um, <laughs> he didn't change the foreign minister. He didn't change any of the obvious 
candidates for replacement. Mm. And I think voters rolled their eyes and said, well, you know, Kishida came along talking about a new capitalism. He's a bit younger than a lot of the prime ministers we've seen in recent years. Maybe he'll be a change agent. And that cabinet reshuffling, I think, not only did it backfire, but I think it, it altered perceptions significantly for the kind of leader he is at the moment where he will be taking Japan. And I have to say, I've been pretty disappointed by that cabinet reshuffling. And I don't, I don't think he's been a very steady hand uh, in the last couple of months, certainly uh, as much as I hoped he'd be. Okay, William, thank you very much indeed. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225 is down over 1%. The S&P, the NSX 200, sorry, in uh, Australia, down about half a percent. Uh, The Cosby in South Korea is off 0.4%. And here in Hong Kong, looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 40 points lower in just under one hour. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The news is next, followed by Back Chat with Jim Gord and Ada Wong. Just before I go, let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Fine and very hot with some haze during the day. The maximum temperature is going to be around 34 degrees in the urban areas and it's going to be very hot tomorrow and the weather will then deteriorate later with swells. The very hot weather warning is in force at the moment. It's 29 degrees, 85% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Andrew Shirosky with the Half Hour News. For the fourth day running, the local daily COVID caseload has topped 6,000. Health authorities confirmed 6,617 new cases yesterday, including 237 imported cases. Dr. Albert Au from the Center for Health Protection said this was worrying. For four days in a row, the number of local cases have been over 6,000 per day. So it has picked up a rising trend. And this is worrying. This goes to show that we have a number of transmission chains in the community and transmission is rising. I hope the public can follow all the anti-infection control measures, in particular when you're in a crowd or gatherings, please wear a tightly fit face mask. And for those who are not yet vaccinated, please do so as soon as possible. The deputy director of an NGO says it's a good idea to provide financial support and mentors to needy students, but the quota is too small. The government says it'll give $10,000 each to 2,000 high school students to tackle intergenerational poverty. The students will also be given a mentor. Celai Shan from the Society for Community Organization told RTHK that both the financial support and the time spent with the mentor was too little, and the one-year scheme should be extended to at least three years. To all those children they're living on the poverty line, and they should increase their financial assistance, and they should extend the service year. One year is too few. It's not enough because for cultivate the growth of children need more time. Anthony Fauci, the U.S. government's infectious diseases expert who became a household name during the pandemic, says he'll step down in December. President Biden's chief medical advisor said he wasn't retiring, but embarking on the next phase of his career. Here's the BBC's Gary O'Donoghue. 
Anthony Fauci has been hinting for some time that at 81 years old, he wanted to step back from his official roles. After advising seven presidents and becoming the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, he says he wants to travel and write. Dr Fauci became a hugely polarising figure during the past two years, with many on the right opposed to the restrictions targeting him personally. Joe Biden said the country was stronger and healthier because of Dr Fauci's work. The United States says resurrecting the Iran nuclear deal is closer now than it was two weeks ago. The State Department spokesman said Washington was encouraged by Iran's apparent dropping of the demand to remove the Iranian Revolutionary Guards from the U.S. foreign terrorist organization list. But it added that the response from Tehran hadn't been clear. Earlier, Iran accused the United States of procrastinating in efforts to revive the deal, a charge denied by Washington. The 2015 deal gave Tehran sanctions relief in exchange for curbing its nuclear program. It collapsed after Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out in 2018. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with me, Jim Gould, and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, for our main subject, we're talking about the welfare of the elderly as Hong Kong faces an ageing population.